Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. The great playwright Arthur Miller once wrote that too often we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Perhaps at no time has that been more true than today. In a world where profit maximization and transactional value often seems to dominate, and the current pushback to that could have unintended consequences, we need a new paradigm in order to find our equilibrium. A world of money and value, a world of profit and purpose, a world of unbridled ambition, but still with deeper meaning. My guest, Yancey Strickler, a co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, now looks beyond the narrow focus of places like Silicon Valley and into what just might be an exciting, new, and better world. He's written about it in his first book. It's called This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. It is my pleasure to welcome Yancey Strickler here to the program. Yancey, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. The, I'd forgotten about that Arthur Miller quote. Now I want to redo the book and put that in the front. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah, that's, that's a great, <laughs> such a great line. I mean, it's so true. It, I it, totally, I thought it, I'd, I'd forgotten it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, thank you. To what extent were you thinking about these things back at the time that, that you started Kickstarter? Is this something that, that motivated you then, or is this something that emerged as you were doing the work that you've been doing for the past several years? Well, you know, I think like a lot of things, you learn what you're doing after the fact. You know, at the, at the time, you don't, you know, you're being driven by what seems obvious, but the, the meaning becomes more clear over time. Um, you know, one of the things that we were really motivated by with Kickstarter was in the world before Kickstarter, if you were trying to write a book or make a movie, make an album, start a restaurant, you were pitching your idea to a room full of suits who were looking to put money into something that would bring them a good financial return. You know, they wanted to, they wanted to fund a hit, which makes perfect sense. Uh, but the challenge that we saw was that most creative ideas like have no hope of being hits or making money. There's simply just an idea that's trying to manifest itself in the real world. But because that they, because that idea was not willing to adopt that pro profit motive, it was seen as, you know, just unreasonable and not a good idea. But like the only thing that decided whether something was a good idea or not was its ability to produce at least a 6%, you know, return on the money compound interest, you know, just, just this kind of arbitrary filter. So, you know, the belief with Kickstarter was that if we, change the reason why something could exist from it is financially viable to just the public wants it. People are excited about it. There's a cool story here that a lot, uh, just a far more diverse set of things would get made and a lot more interesting things would get made. And, and so that has really been true. And, you know, I, I could see now that the book is kind of making a similar argument about society at large. Um, but even at the time I started writing the book, I, I didn't exactly connect how it was building on the experience with Kickstarter, but, but now that it's done, I see it as all kind of the same story in a way. How does it relate, though, to the idea of sustainability of any of these either notions or products? I mean, certainly, as you talk about, you know, a 6% return in order to be brought to market might be excessive. But on the other hand, it was a way of separating the wheat from the chaff. It was a way of determining what there really might be a market for. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I think that I think the the story of the past fifty years um, is 
in the past, America and most societies were operated according to moral values, a sense of what's right and wrong, what's meaningful, uh, what's good or bad for people. And then over the recent decades, it instead became ran by, operated by financial value, what was measurable, what could be grown, what could be optimized. And this is totally rational. I mean, to to decide whether or not to do something on a moral basis requires like a two-week Socratic debate. You know, it's it's like... It's hard work. It's hard work. And we all come at that with different things. So price, price, as Arthur Miller noted, is this universal value, this way of simplifying uh, what seems to be a lot of complicated things into one singular number. Um, so I think that that's, that's the story that we've, we've pursued. But there are these moments you have, and I experienced them as a CEO, where you face a decision, you know, option one produces a clear financial outcome. Maybe it has some drawbacks that, you know, you're concerned about, but it's clear to see what the bottom line impact will be. Option two maybe has a less of a, a bottom line impact, but is trying to emphasize non-financial values instead. But that option two comes to seem as being kind of emotional and like not as real. And nine times out of 10, the company's going to choose option one. They're going to choose the one that makes the most money. It's only in, the, in a crisis moment that a company will choose the, the more emotionally satisfying uh, option. And so, you know, what I imagine the long-term goal is, is how do you get both of those things on the same playing field? How do you get the, you know, the, your CFO making the economic argument and then your community team members that are saying, hey, here's the impact on the customers. What is the universe in which those, both of those voices have equal weight and both of those voices are seen as valid and eventually where even both of those voices have numbers to back up their arguments? Um, but to me, if we're to evolve the world into a better place, it doesn't come by imposing a set of morals or values on anybody. Like that's just tier, that would be tyranny in my own image, which is still tyranny. Um, and instead, the idea is how can we translate more of those moral values that are harder to pinpoint? But how do we put them into a more of a rational space where even people who might disagree with that outcome politically could still see that it's the right choice? And if we want to enact this huge kind of change that's needed to, say, slow down the warming of the planet, we're going to have to find new kinds of metrics and new kinds of collective decision-making frameworks because price is just not doing it for us. Is part of the problem that we look at everything with respect to a kind of binary choice, that it either has to maximize profit or it has to be good for the world in some way? The idea being to try and find some kind of paradigm by which we can do both. Yeah. I mean, I, I had an interesting moment recently talking to the CEO of a major outdoors company. And, and I, I asked him, like, could you imagine the case where without serious change in your operations, without you, say, leading a change in how we think about the sustainability of our practices, that, say, the outdoors you know, activity that your company promotes might become impossible 10 years from now. And that actually investing money in producing what would be a non-financial return uh, might be the single most profitable thing you could do for your organization. Like you'll make more money over the long run, but you're really investing it just to make sure that the planet as we know it is still there 10, 20 years from now. And, you know, I, I could see in this person's face that this was just an incomprehensible idea. And, and the notion of investing financially and producing a non-financial return is this option that somehow is just still seen as invalid to us. And it's because we don't know how to really uh, rate or, or how to, you know, how to model out what that non-financial return would be. 
But to me, that that is the mindset shift that I, I think would be so helpful. I mean, you read about now there's wealthy people have trillions of dollars sitting on the sidelines that are not being invested in anything because they don't see any investments that are good enough. Meanwhile, the world is burning. You know, meanwhile, our infrastructure is struggling. Meanwhile, we're going through all these problems and there's just more money than anyone knows what to do with. And, and this is, you know, this is meant to be kind of a, a successful moment. Uh, but to me, it's, we're, we're just trapped by a very limited belief in what money is good for and what is really valuable. The other thing that, that traps us is a kind of short-term thinking of only thinking in terms of, certainly for CEOs, and you can speak to this, only thinking about the next quarter and what the next numbers are going to be and not thinking about how it affects both the company and the world down the road years later. Yeah, this is a problem we especially have in the West. Um, if you look at if you look at a lot of Asian companies, there 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 was there is not this issue. There is more of a long term focus. In, in the book, I write about the founding of Panasonic in the 1920s, and it started with a 200 year mission statement, which was the eradication of poverty from Japan. I mean, that's talk about long term focus. Um, and so it is very endemic to the West. Um, and it's, you know, there's all sorts of ways that it could be demonstrated that is not in our self-interest, that it actually damages us to have such a short-term focus. In the book, I introduced an idea I call bentoism, um, which is based on the Japanese bento box that tries to put the longer term and sort of the collective impact of our decisions into a framework model. Um, so the beauty of the bento box in Japan is that it's four compartments, gives you a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. A, a bento is a convenient and balanced meal that also honors the Japanese dieting philosophy of harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So the reason why you're always hungry after you go get sushi is they left that 20% open so that the next day you're waking up hungry for the next day. And so bentoism, this, this coin and philosophy I created here, is the same idea for our self-interest and our choices, a way of teaching ourselves, relearning the fact that indulging fully in right now is bad for us, and that we have to leave room for tomorrow, that really we should be thinking about satisfying, not maximizing, and that making decisions that say optimize for the future or that optimize for the people that we care about are perfectly rational and are absolutely the appropriate choices to make in many instances. Today, we struggle to solve the, the challenges of climate change because we look for answers that satisfy our now-me desires. We want to do things that make right now better, but the secret to climate change is that it, it demands a sacrifice. It demands us to evolve before we have to, to try to stem the, the larger negative effects of something. This is hard to do. This is not easy to do. Um, and so the bento box and bentoism is, is meant to be kind of a tool of love that's helping us with something that, that many of us struggle with, which is considering the full impact of our choices and making it something that's second nature. How much do we have to think about, though, how to incentivize it, that we have to deal with a kind of selfish instinct that exists today? Well, I mean, I think that selfish instinct, I think a lot of that is, is taught. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's innate to human beings. In the book, I, I write about this survey that UCLA has done since the 1960s of college students all around the country. And every year they ask them about a lot of different questions, one of which is about their goals in life. And in 1970, the most essential life goal, according to college freshmen, was to, quote, develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 86% of college students said that was essential. 
there's one of these choices that has to do with money, being rich. And that year is about 28% of students said being rich was essential. The most recent year the survey was done in 2017, 82% of students said being rich was essential. And about 40% said having a meaningful philosophy on life was. So in 1970, 18-year-olds were looking for a purpose in life. In 2017, they know their purpose is to be rich. And we can track how this happened year by year. And I don't think it's, this is just like the modern generations being greedy. I think it's a reflection of the cost of college increasing by 19x since then, pay raising only 10% since then. So like people are feeling the squeeze. But these beliefs are 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 taught to us by, by the world we grow up in. You know, there's a, a great old adage about a, a little fish and a big fish are swimming in the ocean. And the big fish says to the little fish, how's the water today? And the little fish says, what's water? You know, it's hard to see the water we swim in. It's hard to see our world in context. And what I hope this book does is, is gives us a sense of where we are. And it's not easy to see. And, you know, we think that the status quo is not only how things are, we think it's how things are supposed to be. But the world in the past was very different. Companies in the past operated very differently. And we evolved from there to here. And, and just just in the same way, I strongly believe we can evolve from here to somewhere else. Is there any reason to think that some of this is cyclical in nature, that we will, because of an overreaction to the greed and the excess of today, go back to this this paradigm that you're talking about in the book, or that it's going to take something else, some other external force to get us to change? Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of evidence that says that you know, solutions emerge uh, in response to acute problems. You know, you, you mentioned in the intro uh, the phrase paradigm shift, and, and that's a phrase that was first put out in a book by a guy named Thomas Kuhn in early 1960s called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he basically says science always operates according to a paradigm, a sort of a way that defines how the world works. But over time, there will be enough of these sort of anomalies where we discover things that don't operate the way the paradigm says they should. And after you have enough of these anomalies, there creates this crisis moment where someone's going to have to come up with a new way to look at the world that allows the things that don't make sense to make sense. And that you're sort of you're, – you're turning the what seems irrational according to the world as it operates now and making it rational. And so that is a paradigm shift. So I think we're at that moment. But you, know, you, you tend to need crises for people to really open up their beliefs um, you know, 2016 election is certainly a moment of like a real shift in the mindset of America. And so I do think we're in a space where we're untethered from a, a lot of beliefs that we had previously held and, and believed so strongly. And we're also learning where our belief system conflicts with what we thought we believed in. So, for example, the, the controversy of the NBA in China a couple months ago, where we had sort of blindly assumed that economic expansion would also mean like expansion of other American values like free speech. And suddenly we find that actually those two values might be in conflict and which value is most important. And right now we're choosing financial value as being more important. But, you know, 50 years ago, if you had said an American company, uh, you told an American company they needed to operate in the Soviet Union because they would make more money that way, we would say, no, that you have to uphold American values and, and that's what's more important. But today we're in an age where it's it's the economic value that matters. And, and, and so that's that's something that, can and will change, but it needs these record scratch moments like China. It needs crises that let us sort of question the assumptions that we're operating on. And I think we're moving into one of those spaces again right now. And as we move into that, 
potential space. How important is leadership? How important is it to find individuals that are able to articulate that change and, and make people understand it? I mean, it's, uh, you, you have to have it. You, ha- you have to have the evangelists. You know, there's, there, there's so many gaps between uh, idea and reality. You know, there's, there's execution is one we always focus on, but it's also belief. You know, if people believe in an idea, it will become real. That, that's what Kickstarter taught me. You know, here, here was something that three friends had sort of been working on and made up, and it was a, the idea of people putting money together to create collective things where no one gets any financial upside. Like every investor we talked to told us we were crazy. Um, and then how did it become real? It became real because other people believed in this idea and they also became carriers and supporters of it. So, you know, our individual beliefs don't feel like much, but, but change is contagious. Change has compound interest. You know, some people changing means more people will change. And, you know, I, I think on a lot of issues, we're all kind of waiting around for someone else to go first. And, and in reality is, even though our own personal decision to say go to a climate strike on a Friday or to express a different value set than your coworkers in an important meeting, that those things do add up and, and have meaning. We sort of discount ourselves and the impact that we can have. So, you know, I, again, I, I'm, I'm optimistic and I just think that we've, we've told ourselves a story that we're powerless. We've told ourselves a story that the world has to be the way that it is, but uh, history shows that that's not the case. And history shows that we underrate our abilities, you know, to to our own detriment. To your point about leadership and people evangelizing, does that have to come from traditional political ways? Does it come from the business community? Does it come from the grassroots? Where does it come from? Um, That's a good question. I mean, I I think it can originate in any of these spaces. I I think that for, you know, I I want this point of view to not be like the the cute indie thing that gets a nice patronizing pat on the head for trying hard. You know, I want this to be the mainstream. I want this to be the way the hidden default, the way people just think the world, the way the world should work and does work. And to do that requires political power. Um, you know, a lot of the power of financial interest today was achieved politically, changing laws, regulations. You know, elections are decided entirely by money at this point. Um, so political power is a huge part of it. But, you know, the business community um, has probably been never, never more powerful than it is at this moment. And you could see some businesses like Kickstarter and Patagonia um, sort of using their, their business power to try to also evolve social values. Uh, I think we're going to see more of that. Um, and, and in part, you're seeing that because our institutions don't feel like they're responsive enough um, because companies have so much power and also just because you know, the world has turned in, everything is a marketplace. And so using market-driven ideas uh, to try to, I don't know, promote social change is, is just an avenue that seems more accessible than political change for people. Um, but in the end, it can't just be one. You, you know, you need everyone to move along together. When did this happen in the past in American history? It, it happened It happened in crises. It happened in wars. It happened in the Depression. It happened in the Cold War where capitalism was competing with communism to see which would be the best way to order society. And the way that battle was fought was to see which system could grow the biggest middle class. That's why America worked so well in the 1950s and 60s because capitalism was having to prove itself. It was the, the law of competition was making capitalism its best self. 
But in the last few decades, it's, it's become a lazy monopolist, just taking in cheap profits, laying off the people, and just amassing as much money as it can without much thought of anything else. What kind of crisis has to happen, and does a crisis have to happen? Do things have to get worse before they can get better? Well, I think we've been seeing it. You know, one of the ways that economists really track social instability is something called the Jenny coefficient, which basically looks at uh, how much uh, inequality, financial inequality exists in a, in a society. And, you know, if you look at the major nations that have experienced populist changes of some kind, the U.S., the U.K., France, India, uh, Italy, uh, and now in South America, Chile and Brazil, these are actually all the, the wealthiest nations. These are the wealthiest nations in the world. The, it's the wealthiest nations in South America that have had these problems. And so it's, it, it's, it's interesting that it's not sort of the middle-class nations, the ones that have not prioritized top-line GDP growth. Those countries are healthier than ones that have just chased the, the financial goal. Um, you know, I think the reason why there hasn't been a bigger pra- crash is just how much money has been has flooded into the system since the financial crisis. Um, you know, the the amount of money from quantitative quantitative easing and other government policies have just filled the market with so much money. Where you know, there's there's trillions of dollars of capital sitting on the sidelines because there aren't good enough places to make money with it. So that provides a really big buffer. Um, so, you know, I think an economic crisis is something that could create that. And then the other one would just be a, a political crisis, which is just people saying this government no longer represents my needs, no longer represents what matters. Um, and so that, that leads to, I think, which is might, might be the most likely way that we see that crisis moment, unfortunately, which would be through the climate. Um, you know, if we're in a place like we are now where fires or storms can just spark up and, and erase billions of dollars of economic value erase entire ways of life off the map. Um, I think that really reorders what you find important and really changes sort of what you're asking a government to protect you from. Right. And, and so it, it's, it's in response to these sorts of problems that these, that these, that the need for solutions comes, that the openness to solutions come. And, you know, there's, there's all sorts of fascinating research that will show that like it's in the crashes that, that the next boom starts. It's when people are desperate that they reach for new ideas. And inevitably, we human beings will find one that ends up working for us. Uh, but it's hard to do when the money's easy. It's hard to do when the, when the times are good. And for a lot of people, they're really struggling right now. But for the people on top, they, they feel pretty insulated and, and probably pretty great about the state of things. And when you look at that class inequality, the economic inequality that you were talking about before, it has generated, of course, an awful lot of anger and an awful lot of divide that, that makes it tougher to try and find some of these solutions, arguably. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I don't know, four to 600 billionaires in the U.S. And, you know, the world seems to operate according to largely their desires. Um, yeah, I mean, that you know, ultimately, I think higher taxes are going to be some part of an answer down the line. I mean, you know, to me, the, the promise of any society should be to, to provide for kind of the lowest rungs on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's providing safety and security. And like, if you're a member of this society, that's what we grant you. That's what it means to be a citizen. Um, And that's just something that the United States is falling way short on. Uh, Other nations have done a better job of that. That, that notion is wrapped up into a lot of political divides where it's, it's like the notion of providing for your own people is, is somehow 
become a very controversial idea. Um, but to me, that like that's that's the promise of a family, right? That's the promise of an organization. Of course, that should be the promise of a society. Um, but you know, it's even for someone that is richer than we could possibly imagine. You know, there's that loss aversion of of losing anything, and and it makes people so protective. And there's all sorts of human you know, human emotions that drive that, that are really not rational. You know, it's like the Jeff Bezos is 160th billionth dollars, not doing him much good, but it could mean a lot to a lot of other people. Um, but yet the notion of just giving that up or, or allowing that to be used for something else is, is just a really hard thing for people to swallow. And, uh, and so I, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of human nature at the heart of that. Um, so it's, it, it does require, you know, some, some bigger changes. But what I'm imagining is that while there is a political side to this, I'm trying to imagine what is the new knowledge that will allow the, the Jeff Bezoses of the world who I think just want to succeed according to what seems to be the best idea of success. And, and I think that you can get them on board by demonstrating that making decisions for the future is, is simply better. And, and you're trying to win the argument um, not on – moral crusade, but trying to win the argument according to just best outcomes, ideal outcomes, what we want a society to be. Um, and so this is not an overnight change. It's one that, uh, that I, I think takes a, a generation basically. Um, but that's, I think that's the level that we should be approaching this. Bringing it back a little bit to your experience with Kickstarter, what role does technology and interconnectedness and global interconnectedness play in trying to get to this new view of the world? Well, I mean, it's, it's technology is so much of what's allowed all of our voices to matter, right? I mean, and for good or ill, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of upside to that. There's a lot of downside to that, too. You can't say that's an unqualified good thing. Um, but, you know, one of the examples I give in the book uh, of like a new approach to value is the pop singer Adele. And in, in 2014, Adele went on tour. And when Adele goes on tour, her tickets immediately sell out and they get resold on secondary ticketing, med, ticketing websites for you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars more. And so Adele was playing shows for either wealthy fans or for less wealthy fans who are spending more money than they could really afford to see her play. And so Adele ended up finding this startup that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist and try to numerically quantify that and then allowed Adele to just invite like the top 30 percentile of her fans in each of those markets to buy a ticket to a show. And those fans would pay the same face value. There would be no restrictions on whether or not they could resell the tickets. But the idea was that if we use this algorithm that's kind of optimizing for loyalty and optimizing for a fair experience that people will sort of all follow the rules. And they did. It was less than 2% of those tickets got scalped versus 10 or 20 times that many for a normal show. And so here was an example of Adele using technology, using a new kind of algorithm to optimize not for her own financial self-interest, but to instead optimize for a kind of collective self-interest. And that's a, you know, that's a choice that wouldn't have been available without that technological tool. Um, so I think the forms of measurement and values we can identify are going to be very different than anything we've imagined before. That's going to sometimes make us feel very uncomfortable. It's going to lead us in some weird directions, probably some wrong directions at some point. Um, but I, I think that ability to translate something like loyalty or fairness into a, a sorting tool that allows us to sort of mitigate some of the effects of an overly financialized way of thinking about things 
that leads to a, a possibility of a more balanced kind of experience and a more balanced kind of world. Yancey Strickler, his new book is This Could Be Our Future, A Manifesto for a More Generous World. Yancey, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you.